Hello, everybody. How are you doing out there? Good? <laughs> One good. I guess everybody else was mediocre. Right. Hey, we're wrapping up John chapter 16 and uh, John's gospel today. We're covering verses 29 to 33. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can turn to that passage if you want. Uh, but Jesus is going to predict in these few verses that his disciples are going to fail. With that in mind, I used the Life Alert commercial, which uh, contains the phrase, right, I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, with Jesus' followers, probably we think we're beyond that. But here's the truth. We all fall, we all fail from time to time. Failures are real experiences. But here's the deal. Failure should never do us in. We may fall, but we can, according to Jesus, get back up. And that's the title of this message. That, too, is uh, something Jesus predicts for his disciples. So we pray for us, and then we will burrow in. God, thank you for this time we have together. Thanks for your word, which teaches us things that uh, we probably would never guess are true. But since you proclaim them to be true, we know they're true. So we ask that you would descend on us today as he prayed, that you would fill us with your spirit, fill us with hope, even in the midst of our failures. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you think about it, we all start failing pretty early in life, don't we? First time you tried to walk, I bet you fell. <laughs> Eventually, maybe you made a few steps, and then you fell. Even so, your parents thought those first few steps were like the cat's meow, right? Look, if you took three steps today and then fell over, that'd probably be a fail. There'd be some serious questions about what's going on with you, right? The first time you jumped into a pool, you probably would have drowned had mom and dad not been there. First time you put on roller skates, my guess is you fell all over the rink and came home a little bit bruised and battered. First time you took a little baseball bat and tried to swing it and hit a ball, you probably missed. Uh, I, for one, got failing grades in handwriting all the way through elementary school. Fortunately, in junior high, they stopped, they stopped failing me because they didn't test that as a, as a skill. But we all know what failure is. And we all know what falling is. The key, though, is getting back up. I'm going to tell you about someone who failed over and over and over and over and just kept getting back up. He was a businessman, and his business went bust, right? He ran for a seat in the state legislature a, a year later after his business busted. Uh, he managed to get elected the second time, but he got defeated the first time. Tried again. And two years later, he actually gets elected to the state legislature. His sweetheart died a year later, and he had a nervous breakdown. In eight, uh, a couple of years later, he was elected for a second term, but then he lost two years later a bid for a seat in the U.S., uh, his state's House of Representatives. He was then defeated for a seat in the U.S. Congress five years later, but he then made it to Congress a couple years later. He then lost a bid for re-election two years later. He was defeated for a seat in the U.S. Senate uh, two years later, defeated for the vice presidency in two years later after that, and then defeated for his run in the Senate in eight, uh, let's see, two years after that. Just a constant barrage of failures. But Abraham Lincoln was eventually elected president of the United States. 
1860. He just failed and got up and failed and got up and failed and got up. He just kept on getting up. So I know, based on how life typically goes, that there are people here who probably failed somewhere or with someone, maybe even with the Lord. This passage tells us that you can get up and have a sense of peace in your life and even victory. And that's the thrust of the passage in chapter 16. Let's read it together. It's on the screen. Jesus talking. His disciples said, Oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Let me bring you up to speed in terms of context. What we typically refer to as the upper room discourse occurs in John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. It's the longest recorded message we have of Jesus talking to his disciples. But it all didn't take place in the upper room. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus gets his men up and they begin walking out of the room, out of Jerusalem, uh, probably down through the Kidron Valley and then up the hill on the opposite side to uh, ultimately their destination, the Garden of Gethsemane. So chapters 15 and 16 are actually spoken while they are making their way to the garden. Now, Jesus has talked about a lot of things so far, most of which the disciples did not fully understand at the time. And their occasional interruptions actually revealed that they were often baffled by some of the things that he said to them. And verse 29 kind of highlights that. Ah, now you're speaking plainly to us. Implication, before this, you've been kind of speaking in riddles that we didn't understand. And they say, now we know that you know all things. And we believe who you are, that you came from God. However, as confident as that declaration sounds, Jesus immediately predicts that they're going to fail. They're going to fall. That they're going to be scattered and leave him alone. But ultimately, eventually, they will get back up and experience his peace and victory. So what I want to do is go back through this final paragraph with you this morning in John chapter 16. I want to zero in on kind of three principles about human failure and divine restoration. We're going to look at their bragging. We're going to look at their blundering. And then we're going to look at the blessing that Jesus promises. So here's the first principle. I don't know if you've figured this out or not, but our faith can be just a little bit shaky. It's often not as reliable as we think it is sometimes. Go back to verse 29. Notice the disciples say to Jesus, okay, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. Now we know you know everything. Don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So you hear that? Now, now we know. Now we believe. That's their assertion. 
In this discourse so far, Jesus has told them that he is leaving, but the language he employed was a little bit cryptic. It was kind of figurative language, and they didn't really understand it at the time. Now, I know we've already read some of this before, earlier, but we have to connect a few dots to understand what the disciples are trying to say to Jesus. Jesus said he's leaving, but he's speaking figuratively. They didn't get it. So go back with me to verse 16 in this same chapter. Jesus does this little, a little while thing. He goes, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, it's just gibberish to them. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Okay, pretty clear. They don't know what he's talking about. Now listen, here's the interesting thing. They don't ask Jesus these questions. They're just talking amongst themselves. But Jesus knows what they're talking about because he knows all things, right? So right before this passage, in verse 28, Jesus speaks plainly. Oh, you want plain speak? Here it is. I came from the Father. I have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's pretty plain. Pretty simple. Right? I came from the Father, come into the world, now I'm leaving the world, headed back to the Father. That they seem to understand. And that they grasp, sort of. Right? The, the, the fog seems to be lifting a little bit. That's why they immediately say, as we read in verse 29, oh, okay, now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Why did they say, now that you know, now we know that you know all things? Why would they say that? Well, as I mentioned, they never actually asked Jesus the questions that they had that they were asking each other about the old little while thing. They just talked to each other. But then Jesus shows that he knows exactly what they're thinking, exactly what they are saying, and that wows them. Now we know you know all things even what we are thinking and saying and chatting about in private. And because of this, they make this profession of faith. Now we know, now we believe. We get it. So what does Jesus do with this uh, profession of faith? This strong assertion of faith is pretty cool, but it's a bit unreliable. Here's why. Because their faith is not as strong as they thought it was. We believe we know. Yeah. However, notice Jesus' skepticism in his response. Do you now believe? You can tell he's skeptical about what he reveals they will do before the night ends. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be confused. You're going to be afraid. Despite your declaration of belief and faith, you will leave me alone. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of belief. Now, on that night, although it's not recorded here, there were some other bold assertions of faith too. One came from Peter himself. Peter pulls Jesus aside this very night and says, Jesus, just want you to know, just want you to know, that even though all these other guys might forsake you, I will not. I know these other guys are a bit flaky, but I'm Peter. I'm the rock. That's the name you gave me, right? I will never fail you. And Jesus hears that and comes back with this. Well, Peter, here's the truth. Before morning breaks, before the cock crows, you will have denied even knowing me three times. And Peter adamantly reacts. 
Even if I have to die with you, I will not be made to stumble. He's boasting in a level of belief Jesus knows he does not yet possess. Hey, look, they all, they all meant well, but their faith was still weak and unreliable, and here's why. They say we believe, but what they believe, we discover later, is still attached to some unrealistic expectations. They heard Jesus saying he's going to go to the cross and die and then come back. He told them that. But they still believe he is going to be about the business of setting up his messianic kingdom. In fact, after Jesus rises from the grave and appears to his followers in Acts chapter 1, practically the first thing out of their mouths, they ask him point blank, will you now restore the kingdom and reign? See, that's what they anticipate is going to happen. And they're expecting to get, you know, really good paying jobs, status in that kingdom. So let's apply this to ourselves. We say we believe in God. It's a great thing to say. We know certain fixed theological truths. Great thing to talk about. Great thing to chat about. But we ought to be careful, too. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Maybe the most important word there is the word therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? What's it referring to? Well, if you go back to that passage in Corinthians and look at what leads into this, you're going to see something interesting. Paul has just told the story of how the Israelites witnessed God save them from slavery in Egypt. How God led the Israelites across the Red Sea miraculously. How those Israelites saw how God protected them by a cloud that kept the Egyptian army at bay until they crossed over, right? And uh, how God led those Israelites through the wilderness, protected by day, by a cloud, and by night, a pillar of fire. How they as a people with three individuals, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, were the only exceptions. Proved The rest of the people proved disobedient and unfaithful and ended up being sent out to the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died as unbelievers, as their legacy in the wilderness. So I think you've got to remember that when we think we have arrived, we might find that we really haven't yet. Maybe our belief isn't as strong as we think it is. Maybe something's going to happen that's going to shake our faith to the core. Proverbs 16, you know it well. Pride, the writer says, goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Here's another scenario that can lead us to fail, to fall. We can say some things that Jesus actually never said, never promised to us. I've met people that say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'm I'm absolutely positive and sure that everything is going to go perfectly well and fine in my life. I'm never going to be sad. All the bills are going to be paid no matter how much I spend. The sun is always going to shine. I'm going to have perfect teeth because all the TV evangelists on TV seem to have perfect teeth. Like, but my question to folks who believe in such things that Jesus hasn't promised is this. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when what you believe God is supposed to do does not happen? Do you go back and reassess whether you might have some expectations that are really unbiblical? Or do you just take your ball 
and go home. Because you're going to be disappointed if you believe in something that isn't actually something Jesus had promised. So when we say we believe, the question has to be, well, what exactly do we believe? Do you believe what Jesus actually said? Do you believe all the, or do you believe in all the expectations that you have that you wish he had said? Or do you just believe, select certain things and invent stuff to believe in that he never really promised? So Jesus, sad for us, knows all things, including the future. And he questions their belief and predicts their imminent failure that very night. Our confidence in our level of faith can be, hmm, unreliable. Let's move from the first principle to the second. The second one is this. Fortunately for us, God understands our failure. (laughs) Our failure is understandable to him. After all, Jesus knows everything. He asks him the question, do you now believe? And then he says in verse 32, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it's come. I don't know that this happened, but it might have happened. Perhaps Jesus at that point lifted up his eyes, looked across the valley. Maybe he could see in the distance Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders with torches gathering in Jerusalem before making their way to where Jesus was. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But what is clear is that Jesus knows exactly about what's to happen. And he knows how the disciples are going to react. They will flee. They will scatter and depart the scene to take care of numero uno. Right? So you get the picture. For these disciples, it was like the fog is beginning to lift finally. That's kind of how they felt. They've been, uh, been so far of kind of a dark and confusing night. But now they kind of feel like they get it. And they feel like they believe, but then Jesus immediately predicts. Sounds good, but storm clouds are gathering, folks. They're about, to bust, they're about to bust open over your heads this night. And that's going to cause them to tuck tail and run. And that instinct of self-preservation is going to kick in. So two things are implied here. Number one, you, my disciples, are about to be very confused. And that's implied in the question of verse 31. They say, we believe. Jesus says, do you really? Do you now believe? Because within hours, they're going to be in doubt again. And once Jesus is put on the cross and dies, it's going to get worse for them. Look, even on resurrection day, they don't, they're not waiting at the, at the tomb for him to come out. Most of them don't expect him to come out. And when the women come and tell them that he's alive, they don't believe it. They've got to go check for themselves. So doubt and confusion is going to take over over the next few days. How about a good example? Fast forward to Jesus on the road to Emmaus. There are two of his followers walking on that road who don't know that he is risen. Although they've heard rumors, interestingly enough, they didn't hang around long enough to find out whether it was true. They're leaving thinking it's over. It's hopeless. And Jesus shows up. They don't recognize him. He hides who he is from them. And he asks, hey, what are you guys talking about? What are you fellas chatting about? And they go... Are you the only person on planet Earth that doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem the last few days? And they tell Jesus that this person that we believed, past tense, in, the one that we had hoped, past tense, would redeem Israel, was killed. We had hoped he would be the one. Hear that? Past tense. They didn't say, we're hoping that any moment he's going to rise out of the grave and we're going to see him again. No, for them it was over. Totally over. They're hopeless. 
When Jesus died, their hope died. When the tomb was sealed, their hopes were gone. We had hoped he would be the one. Implication, he wasn't the one. Is it possible that somebody here this morning has some very confused ideas or is a confused disciple of Jesus Christ? At one time, you know, everything was clear. Everything was crystal clear. You know, you had a handle on things. You knew your theology. You knew the truth. Everything was laid out clearly. Your life was going great. But all of a sudden, something happened. Let me put it the way one author puts it. There's a window in our hearts through which we view God. And uh, one time, that window was very clear. And God was very crisp in our view. We thought we saw him for what he was. But something happened. A pebble struck the window, fractured that window, causing pain. Now everything is seen through that fractured window and things are not as clear anymore. Some of you may have experienced that or may be experiencing it. You believed so clearly, you could see so crisply, but not so much today. And I just say, based on what Jesus is telling us here, please hold on. Please get up. Christian, whether you weather these kind of storms, that kind of faith-shaking disturbance in your life, will you determine to just get up and come out the other side standing? Because Jesus promises that that is what can happen. Will you be able, after a period of evaluation, to get back up and revisit what truth really is and decide to believe what truth really is refreshed? When you go through enough stuff and you see God's promises and you push away the false expectations, you will see things clearly. And that's what it's like after one of these trials. The second thing Jesus predicts is that they're going to be scattered. Look at it. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it's come. You'll be scattered. Scatter means to, be, means to run away, flee like, like scared sheep, dispersed in every direction. You are going to hightail it out of dodge, in other words thinking only about yourselves. Right now, they all seem to be together. All the disciples in this, except for Judas, in this wonderful fraternal fellowship. But as soon as the soldiers come, and as soon as they arrest Jesus, and they're probably looking around for seeing who else they could arrest, they all bail, run away in all directions. In doing so, they will fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 13. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And by the way, we're not making that up. Both Matthew 26 and Mark 14 confirm that that passage in Zechariah actually deals with Jesus and his disciples. Okay. The other, another important word I want to draw your attention to is in verse 32. Look at the word alone. You will leave me alone. I want you to compare that to what they said. We know you know all things. We now believe that you came from God. Yeah, but in a few hours. You're going to leave me standing here all by myself. Now, when they scatter in all directions and leave Jesus, who are they leaving Jesus to? Yeah, his enemies. Where then is their fantastic love for him? Where then is their belief in him? Where then is their commitment and knowledge of him? Nowhere to be found. That said, I don't think Jesus despised them or hated them or that he hurled insults at them as they fled. Why? Because he wasn't surprised. <laughs> After all, he predicted it. He knew it was coming. 
I think maybe his heart was breaking a little bit in what that failure would probably cause them to go through. Still, Jesus acknowledges that he won't be totally alone. He's got the Father with him. So here's the point. Jesus knew that they would fail him. And he knows we will fail him. Here they say, we know you know all things. Jesus says, yeah, you're right, I do. I know everything. I know that your faith is weak and that you're going to run away. That's what I know. And he knows that about us, too. Something I need to say before we move on to the last point. Whatever you do when you are experiencing such a trial or a failure, don't make the mistake a lot of us make. Don't isolate. Because Jesus predicts they're going to run away and go each to their own homes. They won't be hanging together. Don't make that mistake. Run toward the company of God's people. These guys who are together run away. They all run in different directions apart from one another. Never in a trial or temptation run away from God's people. Here's why. You probably think that everyone else at this church or whatever church you go to has got their act totally together. That's kind of what most people think. They walk in and say, well, everybody else got their act together. I better kind of be quiet. Better be careful. People, I don't want people to really know who I am. You think that those people don't fail. Those other people, they never fall. You're the only one. Can I let you in on a little thing that Jesus knows? Everyone attending this church or any church fails. Everyone attending this church or any church falls. We may act like we don't, but we've all messed up. The surge is not a place for perfect people, as if they exist, for Pete's sakes. It's a place for people who know they're not perfect, but have been forgiven. I've spoken to people who will say, well, I haven't been in church like for two years because I'm really going through some deep and dark and hard things. This is damaging to you. Because when I go through deep and dark and hard things, I try to run to God's people not away from them. So please know that in this place are people who can help you write out the trial, write out the failure. We've all been there. And likely we'll be there again before it's over. Okay, finally something really encouraging. Our future that Jesus talks about is unmistakable. Look at verse 33. Here's the third principle. We come to the blessing part. After the bragging and the blundering part comes the blessing. I've said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This is Jesus wrapping up the entire upper room discourse. This is the final word. There's a, there's a chapter 17 coming, but he's not talking to the disciples in that. They overhear him, but he's praying to the Father, that whole chapter. So we'll start that next week. But after all that he has said in these four chapters, he leaves them with this. After predicting their failure, he now leaves them with this promise. Yes, you've declared your faith. Yes, you're really boasting in something that's not quite as solid as you imagine. Truth is, you're going to fall. You're going to fail tonight. In just a few hours, you're going to leave me alone. But I'm telling you all this because failure is not to be your permanent state. You can have, on the other side, peace and victory in me because I have overcome the world. Now, when Jesus says, I've said these things to you, what things is he talking about? Well, actually, he means all that he's spoken this entire night. 
in the Upper Room Discourse. Maybe we should remind ourselves of some of that. One of the things he said in chapter 13 is how much he loved them. And he showed them by washing their smelly feet that night. A metaphor of the servant's heart for them. He said, I've done this for you. You should do this to each other. Chapter 14, he tells them all about heaven. Why? Because he sees them going there. Yeah, they're going to fail tonight. But he sees them going there. He shared with them that he's going to, he's come from the Father. He's going back there. And when he gets back there, what's he going to be doing? Preparing a place for them despite their failings, despite their failures, despite their falling. Why? Because there's more to come. There's stuff on the other side that Jesus will bring you through. He tells them about heaven. He also tells them this. Hey, I've done some pretty cool things here on earth. I just need you to know that uh, after I'm gone, the stuff you're doing is going to be even greater works than I did. He tells them about the Holy Spirit who's going to come and set up shop inside of them. And the Holy Spirit's going to be moving through them powerfully. And the Spirit of God's going to be using them to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he tells them how to talk to God. You come to me and every time you've had a problem, you talk to me, but now I'm calling you friends. You can go directly to the Father and ask in my name. He gives them the truth too about how the world hates them. Just like they hated him. But don't fret. Don't fret. Because Jesus has overcome the world. You will, you rascals, end up victorious and have peace when all of the dust settles. So bottom line is that, despite all the hostility and persecution and tribulation that is in the world that you and I might experience, that we're, they're going to walk in and into, and some of us are going to probably walk into it too. And despite all the confusion that's in their minds and all that's going to happen to them downstream, they're going to be able to get up and find in Christ a sense of peace and joy and eventually experience victory despite the flailing and falling around over the place, that they'll do, they'll get back up and be victorious in Christ. Now, listen, a lot of people think that peace is the absence of conflict. For most people, that's what peace is, the absence of war in their minds. They think, well, I just need a little peace. You know what people mean when they say that. I want you to get the dogs out of here. I want you to get the kids out of here. Don't let anybody call me. I want some quiet time. I need some peace and quiet. I need some space. That is an inadequate an adequate definition of peace. It's not the absence of conflict. I think a better definition is this. It's the, it, peace is the presence of God in the middle of the conflict. In the world, you will have tribulation. But cheer up, people. I've overcome the world. I've spoken these things to you that you might have peace. There's a painting. I don't know if you can see it. Well, it's called, interestingly enough, peace in the midst of the storm. When you look at it, don't you wonder, where the heck is the peace? <laughs> it's a storm setting. It's an ocean with waves bouncing up high. Lightning is in the entire scene. The waves are crashing on the rocks. Spray is everywhere. It's, my view, looking at it, it's violent. But you have to look really closely to see. About two-thirds of the way down in the painting, right in the center, there's a little hole in a rock where there's a mother bird with all her chicks sleeping in the nest. They're sleeping. She's watching. The reason they're sleeping is because she's there. It's her presence that brings them peace. They don't care so much about what's going on around them because right there with them is mom in the nest. 
Jesus tells us that in this world you will have tribulation. It's a word that means squeezed or pressured or distressed. But Jesus says, no worries. No worries, guys. I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. Notice how Jesus puts that. He speaks of it in the past tense. Isn't that interesting? He's headed to the cross where he will defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave, paying for those with faith in him to avoid the death sentence that their sin should have them suffer. And through that faith, they will become children of God. He will one day conquer the world physically by his second coming. That's still a little time off, right? But he speaks of it as if it's already done. I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. In other words, I guarantee this for you. I've made this promise to you. I'm, I'm going to conquer the world. It's as good as done. That's what he's saying to them. And this should cause us to be of good cheer. Despite the tribulation, tri- tribulation or failure that we experience, we know who wins in the end. And we know where we're headed when it's all over. And we're told this by the person who knows all things. It's a done deal. How do we live overcoming lives in a world that hands us tribulation? Listen, transformation happens when even in the middle of the tribulations or failure, you grow to know God better. Jesus Christ better. The Holy Spirit better. God's Word better. And you allow those experiences to change you and cause you to become more and more into the likeness of Christ, which is, if you don't know this, God's interest. Doing that allows you to deal with the tribulation and failure, come out with peace and joy that Jesus talks about. It almost sounds like you could be an optimistic person, even difficult through the difficult times of life here. Maybe a person who brings life to this world. Here's an example. There's a psalm. I found it this a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 84. It's talking about some people headed to Jerusalem for the, one of the festivals. Listen to what it says. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is. As they go through in their way to the festival, they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a They make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. See, Jerusalem, get the picture, is on top of a mountain. Down below, to get up to Jerusalem, you're going to be crossing deserts. Valley of Baca is an interesting thing. Baca means dry, barren. Notice the transformation described here. As God's people cross that parched, barren, dry desert. The people of God make it, transform it into a place of springs. They're excited to be headed to Jerusalem to worship God. They're together as a community of travelers. Yeah, it's a place with no water. No water. The psalmist doesn't say that they find springs. It says they make it a place of springs just by their joyful and worshipful presence. And then apparently God blesses them with some early rains that form pools. But they changed the landscape through their presence there. If that sounds a little bit too much like a fairy tale, let me tell you about Ted and Dorothy Houston, a Christian couple who lived in South Dakota. Ted graduated from the pharmacy school in 1929. 
he worked for some other pharmacists, but he and his wife Dorothy knew they had to open up their own pharmacy in order to actually make a living. So um, they didn't know what to do. Uh, but Ted's dad died, leaving him $3,000. So they searched and found a pharmacy for sale in a little town called Wall, South Dakota, in 1931. Family members told them things like this. Hmm, Wall. Yeah, that's in the middle of nowheresville, right? Or Wall is just about as godforsaken place as you, can go, as you can go to. The town had 326 people, all poor, most were farmers who'd been wiped out by the drought or the Great Depression. Ted had studied some veterinary medicine, so he helped out farmers when their stock fell ill. Still, they struggled for five years and were about to give up. One slow a day, when work wasn't that hard in the, in the pharmacy, Dorothy decided to leave the store and take their child off for a nap. Hour later, she came back, complaining and proclaiming that all of the jalopies driving on a nearby road were making so much noise that they couldn't sleep. And so that spawned an idea. Hey, why don't we put up some signs on that highway over there and let people know that they could come into the drugstore for free ice water? Not a bad idea for people who are driving across a dusty and hot prairie. Well, it worked. People started coming. They expanded the signage 25 miles in each direction, and then they did it on steroids. They, they put signs up in New York, like Albany, New York. And I, I got to tell you this. I was in Paris with a previous job I had, and I saw a sign there on the wall for Wall Drugstore in South Dakota with the mileage. <laughs> I didn't think about it at all until I got home because I put a little note in my little notebook and said, I got to check this out. The Husted family now gets 2 million visitors a year. That's between five and 6,000 customers a day. The family expanded the pharmacy to include a restaurant, all kinds of entertainment. They turned the desert into a spring, and they praised God for it. Ted and Dorothy lived by the motto, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said. In this world, you will have tribulation. Pain and failure is inevitable. That you can have peace and joy and victory because I've overcome the world. So maybe misery is optional. Maybe Jesus really does know all things. But we pray and go to communion. God, thank you for this time we've had together. Thanks for this sad but also kind of encouraging word. We're going to have some troubles. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. Uh, we should know that about ourselves. And it's kind of comforting that you know that about ourselves and that you love us anyway. You proclaimed your love for the disciples like you proclaimed your love for us. You so loved the world that you gave your only son and he came willingly to die for us. So that love ain't going anywhere. So thank you for that encouragement this morning. Thank you for the knowledge that we don't have to go sulk and cry and whine and beat ourselves up. Uh, you already knew this was going to happen when we mess up. And you were there to forgive us. You're there to bring us back. You're there to tell us, hey, get up. Get up. Get up. Keep getting up. It's all going to be okay. I've got everything under control. We ask that you would make that something that resides in our hearts. As we take communion, maybe we can ponder that a little bit this morning. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.